worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to the history of evangelicals in politics, the Obama era. This is episode 11, A New Front in the Culture Wars. I'm John Fia. On September 17, 1998, 40-year-old Robert Eubanks called the police to report a black man going crazy with a gun at the Houston area apartment of his friend John Lawrence, a 55-year-old medical technician. Indeed, there was a black man in Lawrence's apartment. His name was Tyrone Gardner, but he was not crazy and he did not have a gun. In fact, Eubanks knew Gardner. They were about to start living together and had just finished a day of moving their stuff into a new apartment. Lawrence helped Eubanks and Garner with the move and after dinner at a Mexican restaurant, invited the couple to his house for drinks and socializing. Eubanks and Lawrence knew each other well. They had an on again, off again romantic relationship for more than two decades. During the course of the evening, Eubanks, who had been drinking heavily, vodka was his drink, became jealous that Lawrence was flirting with Garner. Eubanks left the apartment to buy a can of soda and used the nearby phone booth to call the police with the fake story about the gun and the crazy black man. The police arrived quickly. They entered the apartment and saw Lawrence and Garner naked in a bedroom, engaging in sexual activity. The lead officer on the scene, Joseph Quinn was his name, arrested Lawrence and Garner and charged them with deviant sex. A Texas anti-sodomy statute known as the Homosexual Conduct Law made it a misdemeanor to participate in intercourse with another individual of the same sex. The law originally forbade any kind of sex outside of marriage, but in 1973, it was rewritten to focus specifically on gay sex. After a night in jail, Lawrence and Garner pleaded no contest to homosexual conduct and received a fine. Eubanks spent a month in jail for filing a false police report. But the story did not end there. Lambda Legal, an organization specializing in defending the civil rights of gays and lesbians, helped Lawrence and Garner appeal their fines. Both the Texas Courts of Appeals and Texas Court of Criminal Appeals 
responded to Land Illegal's case by upholding the Texas sodomy law. The case of Lawrence v. Texas eventually then came before the United States Supreme Court. Several Christian right organizations wrote amicus briefs defending the Texas anti-sodomy law. In a brief written for the Family Research Council and Focus on the Family, Notre Dame University law professor Gerard Bradley and Princeton University political philosopher and legal scholar Robert George argued that sexual intimacies of married couples are constitutionally protected, but non and extramarital sexual acts are not. And since marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman, anything other than sexual relations between a man and a woman should not be protected. The brief argued that states were perfectly within their rights to punish evils, such as sex outside of marriage, and could choose to protect marital intimacy by prohibiting same-sex deviant acts. For Bradley and George, this was more than simply a case about what one could or could not do in their bedrooms. The proper relationship between sex and the institution of marriage was at stake. Liberty Council, a Christian right legal defense organization run by former evangelical pastor and future dean of the Liberty University Law School, Matt Staver, also submitted an amicus brief in defense of the Texas anti-sodomy law. It also argued that states have the right to regulate human sexual relations, especially when such sexual relations, such as homosexuality, was, quote, deemed harmful to society. Homosexuality is not a victimless crime, Staver and his team argued, because those who engage in such conduct usually have multiple sex partners and thus place the general public at an increased risk of disease. Like Bradley and George, the Liberty Council brief argued that the Lawrence plaintiffs assumed an inaccurate understanding of gender roles. And this view of the nature of men and women would lead in a future case, perhaps, to a redefinition of marriage. Other briefs written in defense of the Texas anti-sodomy law linked homosexual activity to prostitution, adultery, necrophilia, bestiality, child pornography, incest, and pedophilia. A brief from the United Families International, a Mormon nonprofit agency based in Gilbert, Arizona, even referenced the fictional television town of Mayberry. If the Supreme Court decided in favor of Lawrence, it read, Aunt B would have a constitutional right to sexual intimacy with Andy. Despite the best efforts of the Christian right and the state of Texas, the Supreme Court in a six to three decision struck down the sodomy law, and by extension sodomy laws in 13 other states, on June 26, 2003. In essence, the court said that homosexual activity was now legal in the United States. Just as Anthony Kennedy wrote the majority decision, he said, 
Liberty protects the person from unwarranted government intrusions into a dwelling or other private place. In our tradition, the state is not omnipresent in the home. Liberty presumes an autonomy of self that includes freedom of thought, belief, expression, and certain intimate conduct. Some critics of Kennedy's opinion noted that the decision in Lawrence v. Texas gave homosexuals the same right to privacy and control over their bodies that Roe v. Wade gave to women in 1973. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote a scathing dissent. He said that Kennedy's emphasis on liberty in this case was not relevant because any state had the right to infringe upon the liberty of individuals if such infringement was narrowly tailored to serve a compelling state interest. Anti-sodomy laws, he argued, were certainly of compelling interest to the state of Texas because they upheld what Scalia called traditions and consciences. He noted that punishing sodomy had a long history in the United States and added that as late as 1986, the Supreme Court upheld an anti-sodomy law on the books in Georgia. This was known as the Bowers v. Hardwick case. Scalia concluded that the majority opinion in Lawrence v. Texas is the product of a court that was wrongly influenced by what he called a law profession culture that has largely signed on to the so-called homosexual agenda, by which I mean the agenda promoted by some homosexual activists directed at eliminating the moral opprobrium that has been traditionally attached to homosexual conduct. Scalia didn't stop there, however. It is clear from this that the court has taken sides in the culture war, departing from its role of assuring, as neutral observer, that the democratic rules of engagement are observed. Many Americans do not want persons who openly engage in homosexual conduct as partners in their business, as scoutmasters for their children, as teachers in their children's schools, or as boarders in their homes. They view this as protecting themselves and their families from a lifestyle that they believe to be immoral and destructive. Chief Justice William Rehnquist and Justice Clarence Thomas joined Scalia's dissent. Justices John Paul Stevens, David Souter, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, and Sandra Day O'Connor sided with Kennedy. While Lawrence v. Texas was being litigated and argued, seven same-sex couples from Massachusetts were fighting for their right to legally marry. In March and April 2001, Hillary Goodridge and Julie Goodridge, David Wilson and Robert Compton, Michael Horgan and Edward Balmelli, Maureen Brodoff and Ellen Wade, Gary Chalmers and Richard Linnell, Heidi Norton and Gina Smith, and Gloria Bailey and Linda Davies were denied marriage license in the Commonwealth because they were same-sex couples. The gay and lesbian advocates and defenders, or GLAD as they were known, sued the Massachusetts Department of Health and State Superior Court on behalf of these couples. At the time of the suit, same-sex marriage was illegal in all 50 states, and only Vermont had given civil and legal rights to couples in same-sex unions. 
But even Vermont's progressive stance on homosexuality, which was signed into office by governor and 2004 presidential candidate Howard Dean, defined marriage in terms of a union between a man and a woman. A victory in Goodridge v. Department of Health would push the civil rights of gays and lesbians well beyond Vermont's civil union laws. The seven plaintiffs wanted Massachusetts to formally recognize their right to marry. On May 7, 2002, Massachusetts Superior Judge Thomas Connolly sided with the Department of Health, saying, while this court understands the reasons for the plaintiff's requests, to reverse the Commonwealth's centuries-old legal tradition of restricting marriage to opposite-sex couples, their request should be directed to the legislature, not the court. Scalia had made a similar argument about sodomy in Lawrence v. Texas. The people of a particular state, not the courts, should decide who can get married and who cannot. Yet Connolly went even further. Recognizing that procreation is marriage's central purpose, he said, it is rational for the legislature to limit marriage to opposite sex couples who theoretically are capable of procreation. We'll talk about how the legislature responded to Connolly's suggestion in future episodes. Glad and the plaintiffs then appealed Connolly's decision to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts the highest court in the state. Arguments on the case were heard in March, 2003. Amicus briefs on behalf of the Massachusetts Department of Public Health were prepared by the Massachusetts Family Institute, which was an evangelical organization connected to focus on the family and the Family Research Council. The Southern Baptist Ethics and Religious Commission and the Catholic League of Massachusetts. When the Supreme Judicial Court announced in July that it would be postponing its decision on the case, most people of the Commonwealth and a watching nation knew one, that this would not be an easy decision, and two, the court was aware of the magnitude of its decision and the impact it would have on the larger question of gay marriage in the United States. At this point, let's pause from our narrative and try to place the Goodridge case in the history of gay marriage in the United States. In 1973, Maryland was the first state to pass a statute restricting marriage to opposite sex couples. The Baltimore Sun, by the way, devoted 48 words to this story. And the story was tucked away on page D7 of its January 25, 1973 edition. In 1984, Berkeley, California became the first city to provide employee health care benefits to the domestic partners of individuals working for the city. In 1987, 2,000 same-sex couples got married, without the recognition of federal or state governments, of course, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. The event took place in front of the Internal Revenue Service building, so the participants and observers could protest the federal government's lack of recognition of same-sex domestic partners in the U.S. tax code. In 1989, the New York Court of Appeals concluded that gay couples who had lived together for a decade or more would be defined as a family under New York City's rent control regulations. And in the same year, 
the California Bar Association recognized same-sex marriages as legal. In 1992, the Levi Strauss Corporation granted full medical benefits to domestic partners, and Massachusetts Governor William Weld signed an executive order granting lesbian and gay workers the same bereavement and family leave rights afforded to heterosexual government employees. Hawaii was almost the first state to allow gay marriage. In 1993, the Hawaii Supreme Court said that same-sex marriage was a civil right and thus could not be denied to its residents. But due to a long appeal process, the issue of gay marriage was eventually decided in the state legislature, which passed a ban on the practice and eventually embedded that ban in Hawaii's constitution. In the wake of the Hawaii case, 30 more states banned gay marriage, and Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. President Bill Clinton thought the law was divisive and unnecessary, but he still signed it. The Defense of Marriage Act defined marriage at the federal level as the union of one man to one woman. Republicans in Congress feared that if states granted same-sex couples the right to marry, the federal government and other states would have to honor those marriages. The Defense of Marriage Act allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages granted under the laws of other states. Same-sex couples were not permitted to get the same insurance benefits, social security survivors benefits, immigration assistance, ability to file for joint bankruptcy, ability to file joint tax returns, and financial aid eligibility that were offered to married couples. The House of Representatives passed the Defense of Marriage Act by a vote of 342 to 67. Members of Congress opposing the act included Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Joseph Kennedy of Massachusetts, Patrick Kennedy of Rhode Island, John Lewis of Georgia, Zoe Lofgren of California, Edward Markey of Massachusetts, Jerry Nadler of New York, Nancy Pelosi of California, Charlie Rangel of New York, and Bernie Sanders of Vermont. The Defense of Marriage Act passed 85 to 14 in the Senate. Barbara Boxer of California, Russ Feingold of Wisconsin, Diane Feinstein of California, Daniel Inouye of Hawaii, Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, John Kerry of Massachusetts, Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York, and Paul Simon of Illinois were among the dissenters. Democrats Joe Biden of Delaware, Bob Graham of Florida, Tom Harkin of Iowa, Paul Wellstone of Minnesota, Harry Reid of Nevada, and Patrick Leahy of Vermont all voted in favor of the act. While everyone waited for the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court's decision in the Goodrich case, politicians and pundits weighed in. As of late July, President George W. Bush, an opponent of same-sex marriage, was taking a wait-and-see approach to the whole affair. Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum said he would do whatever is necessary to make sure traditional marriage is maintained in America. We don't need to erode the institution more than it already is, Santorum said. It's already under attack. Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions said, 
The formal definition of marriage, as we've always understood it for so many years, is the union of a man and a woman in holy matrimony. Santorum and Sessions also had support from Kansas Senator Sam Brownback. The Republican Party Policy Committee, headed by Arizona Senator John Kyle, fully expected the Massachusetts court to decide in favor of same-sex marriage and noted that other states would follow its lead by appealing not to state legislatures, but to activist state courts. Same-sex marriage cases were already pending in New Jersey, Indiana, and Arizona. The GOP committee directly connected the Goodrich case in Massachusetts to Lawrence v. Texas. Lawrence, Kyle and the committee argued, gave homosexuals autonomy over their sexual lives. And the majority decision even cited personal decisions related to marriage as one example of such autonomy. Moreover, the committee argued, Lawrence v. Texas ignored the voice of the people by concluding that whether a majority of the public opposes a particular practice as immoral is not a sufficient reason for upholding a law prohibiting that practice. The decision in Lawrence would serve as a valuable tool, Kyle and the committee said, for same-sex marriage advocates as they push their cases nationwide. The Senate GOP committee imagined that same-sex couples would marry in Massachusetts and then file lawsuits in other states demanding those states to recognize their Massachusetts marriages. When these requests got denied because they violated the Defense of Marriage Act, the plaintiffs would appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court and potentially force the high court to make a broad and wide-ranging decision on same-sex marriage. A defense of the Defense of Marriage Act was now more crucial than ever. Texas Senator John Cornyn chaired a meeting of the Senate Committee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Property Rights on September 4th, 2003, that focused on the question, what is needed to defend the Bipartisan Defense of Marriage Act of 1996? In a letter to his colleagues following the meeting, Cornyn tried to balance a belief in the human dignity of all Americans with the belief that traditional marriage is worthy of protection. He claimed that children are raised best when they are raised by their mother and father, and he argued that traditional marriage was a pillar of civilization. Like his fellow Republicans, Cornyn worried about the slippery slope created by the Lawrence decision. If homosexual behavior was legal, gay marriage would be next, thus bringing an end to the Defense of Marriage Act. Gay marriage was destined to become the moral issue of the 2004 presidential campaign. President Bush's position on marriage was well known. His belief that marriage was between one man and one woman was shared by six of the Democratic candidates, Joe Lieberman, John Kerry, Dick Gephardt, Wesley Clark, John Edwards, and Howard Dean. All of these candidates made it clear that they supported civil rights for gay couples who were in civil unions but did not support their right to marry. They knew that such support was a risky political move since most Americans opposed gay marriage, but they also needed to separate themselves from Bush on this issue. The Democratic Party mantra in 2004, made popular by the eventual nominee, John Kerry, went something like this, civil rights and civil unions for the gays and lesbians, yes, but marriage, 
no. Only three candidates, and none of them with any real shot at victory, Dennis Kucinich, Al Sharpton, and Carol Mosley Braun, were in favor of gay marriage. So where would the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts come down on the Goodrich case? And how would the Christian right and conservatives generally respond? What would all this mean for the state of evangelicals and politics in the 2004 election year? Stay tuned. of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button.